Hey there, folks. Hope you're having a good Christmas. Sorry it's taking me a little bit longer than a week to get the next episode out. I've been whizzing in between London, Leeds and Manchester, and this is the first chance I've had to actually put this episode together. But I did warn you, it might be a little while between episodes at this time of year. Well, it's worth the wait, I reckon, because in this episode, I talked to Alessandro Pino about food in Gothic literature. Alessandra has written with co-author Ella Buchan, a Gothic cookbook, a wonderful delve into food and how it's represented in Gothic literature. The book is available to buy from Unbound, which is a crowdfunding organisation that specialises in publishing. Now, I've already secured my copy after reading about it on Twitter, and I thought it would make an excellent subject for the podcast. You know, one of the great things about doing this podcast is that I get to read up and research aspects of food history that I probably would never do. And I found my chat with Alessandra most enlightening, and I hope you do too. We talk about loads of different things, but I suppose we focus on how gothic writers use our anxiety with food almost against us. And then we focus on some particular stories. We look at Dracula and Frankenstein, but we take a closer look at Jane Eyre. I'll be back at the end of the chat to tell you all about my other news, this week's Easter eggs, as well as how you can get 10% off a gothic cookbook if you want to buy a copy yourself. Well, thank you very much, Ali, for coming on the podcast to talk about your excellent project, a gothic cookbook. I saw you on Twitter. We had a bit of an exchange on Twitter, I think, about seed cakes. Yes, we did. (laughs) Hello, Neil. Lovely to be here. It's such an intriguing idea to write about the food featured in gothic fiction. It's obvious maybe to write about it in fiction and cast your net very wide. How come you chose to be seemingly quite specific? Well, firstly, I absolutely love meeting people over cake. I think it's the best and maybe the only way to really meet friends and new people. So thank you for reaching out. I can't wait to tell you about this project. It is a bit niche and a little bit weird, but then that just goes hand in hand with the Gothic, I think. So it's perfect. I guess so. Currently doing a PhD in food and the Gothic and cultural memory. And as part of this, I started reading traditional Gothic texts like Frankenstein and Dracula, but also side by side, I was in parallel to this, watching a lot of horror films. And the two things started blending in the sense that I could see that there were some things going on with food, which were very, very frequently coming to to the forefront of my um, attention in a way that I just couldn't stop thinking about these details. And it was mainly that whenever something horrific was about to Mm -hmm. happen, or let's say the devil was about to appear, or there was about to be a haunting or uh, the appearance of a ghost, something food-wise would also happen. And I started noticing it more and more. I started fixating on it on it a little bit, perhaps a little bit unhealthily, and uh, making notes in uh, various journals as I have. And I started putting together sort of pattern, and this tied into the literature as well. So I went back to the roots, and I went back to kind of Gothic literature, just to see what happened with food, and was it something that I was just imagining, or was it something real? And that's how it got started, really. And I was speaking to a friend of mine, Ella, Ella Buchan, who was co-authoring the book with me about this. And so we were chatting about it. And then it was my birthday. And in the post, I got a big, beautiful book by Edgar Allan Poe. Oh, and it was amazing. I love Edgar Allan yeah. Poe. Uh, yes. And it was my birthday. And she said, actually, I was looking for something to do with the Gothic and food, but I just couldn't find anything. And I said, well, Ella, why don't we write it? 
because she's an, an amazing writer and food journalist and recipe developer. Mm-hmm. So I think both of our forces combined would make a perfect team. And then obviously Lee is doing the illustrations and um, Lee Henry from Ounce of Fantastic Style. illustrations. Yes, beautiful. And that's kind of how it all got started. So a little bit weird and in in within that you know there's there we, there'll be an essay in every chapter where we discuss what food means in the gothic sure the food's not just there to enrich the scene and make it descriptive and more in depth it's there doing a job it's it's doing something to the story and moving the story along or make or itself making you feel uneasy i mean we're going to talk about that a little bit later on with some specific examples yeah. dracula's most obvious one in fact, Dracula was the only one I could really think of, but that's because I was thinking of big feast scenes or things like that, but it's not necessarily the case. It's much more subtle and almost sleight yes. of hand sometimes, I think. Yes, and I always felt really sorry for Jonathan Harker because I just thought he's on his trip and he's gone to a nice restaurant and he even makes a little note in his journal, must copy recipe for Mina, because he really he's enjoying the dish, mm-hmm. but it's quite spicy. and. Again, we have this idea of food highlighting some sense of awkwardness or unpleasantness or just something weird that's about to happen. And he starts having all these strange dreams and he thinks it must be this, you know, paprika, the, the paprikash dish and the paprika handle that he has with the spices. And But actually, we know then that he's getting closer and closer to Count Dracula's castle. And so that's what it is, you know. But the food helps us and it kind of entices us into wanting to know more and giving us that feeling because when we read about food we're also in a way feeling what the character is feeling through eating because it kind of awakens our senses sometimes we'll find ourselves you know if someone's crunching into an apple we start salivating a bit I mean I don't know you sometimes yes sometimes no so it just depends how um, how much empathy we have I guess as well so, yeah, so it can really highlight that sense of unease and, um, and make us feel at one with the character. So we feel how awkward Jonathan Harker feels as well. And once he gets to the castle, of course, there is there are big food scenes and there's a big flourish and Dracula kind of unveils all this food. But it's all cold food. And of course, he doesn't participate mm-hmm. in the meal. And also so then we get this sense of, yes, iciness and we just know something bad's about to happen. Food in literature has always been thought a little bit as a prop or some sort of embellishment, something which isn't really fundamental to the plot or pivotal. But actually, we can see more and more that food is very important and it's it's becoming more and more important. And that's one of the questions that I ask myself for the purposes of my PhD. Why is it happening now and what is going on? You know, why why has it become so important? And I think there's a lot of anxiety that we feel nowadays when it comes to food because we need to kind of check where it comes from. We need to understand what the provenance is. We need to decide for ourselves, is this healthy? Is it organic? Um, You know, all these things, there's a lot of pressure. And also we're currently have this weight on us of having to do things proactively for our environment and to make things better and to make the world a better place. And this also goes hand in hand and is very tied in with what we eat and how we treat our animals and how food is produced. So a lot of pressure and a lot of, and this is already, you know, even hundreds of years ago, we're already starting to think uh, with the industrial revolution, 
things are starting to change. The way that things are produced are changing commerce and um, importing products, new products and everything, all that is tied into this and it's tied into the literature in many ways. So that's really, really interesting to see how food as a signifier is often a subtle indicator of how the Gothic genre uses it to show change. Mm-hmm. And yes, and food therefore is more and more and more often connected to anxiety. And because we feel more scared, we sometimes don't know what we're, you know, what we're eating. And obviously we're putting something external into our bodies and that's a big deal. So uh, we, we want to know what that thing is. So I think, yes, we're, we're, we're just plagued by this at the moment. And we can really tell as food becomes more and more important in literature and, and film as well, obviously. Indeed. Well, we've talked, we had a little chat uh, before we started doing this interview, didn't we? And we were talking about how food scenes are often cut out when they've, you know, turned a novel in, in, into a film or a TV show or whatever, or at least maybe the scene's not cut out, but the fact that the it's done in a dining room is cut out because it's too much of a faff. It's really expensive. Actors don't like acting with food. So it takes away that element. So if you've seen more Gothic literature on screen than you, that you've read, you'd probably just think, oh, there's no link. What? I don't understand. So I guess that, for me, anyway, that was the big education. Absolutely. There is a big difference between how also, yeah, how books are adapted or how and the, the cost that that entails in, on a film set. So there are many films that are gothic that have a, a lot of food in them because obviously they're working with food to make a point. And sometimes those food scenes can be quite disgusting as well. So Ella and I have always made it very clear that this gothic cookbook is not going to be something where we use food in that way. Um, to highlight anything that would cause disgust you know they are traditional recipes and we're inspired by what's in the text but it won't be that idea of food that is meant to awaken some sort of disgust or uh, unease in that sense because it just wouldn't be appetizing but of course there's nothing worse than as you say like on a film in, in a film or even in a book when food is used you know you get the eyeball in the soup I think it's in Drag Me to Hell, there's a tooth in a, in a cake or an eye in a cake. You know, these things are meant to make us <laughs> feel really, film, really uncomfortable. I know. Or don't twice. There is, there is a tooth suddenly in the soup and that's a family scene. So very often you'll find that in these family scenes where you're meant to be bonding with other members of your family, when you find an eyeball in your slice of cake, you know, something is about to go down. Like Yes, it definitely can't be a good omen. <laughs> It just isn't, is it? Like it just, and that again, like that ties into these rules that Mary Douglas has talked about. Uh, you know the boundaries that we have. Why is a tooth unacceptable though? Because we 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 eat other things that are kind of similar in many ways, other um, or organs, you know, and um, and we wouldn't necessarily faint at the sight of that. And yet a tooth or an eye. So you know, it's all about our boundaries as, as people and the boundaries that we follow socially and the gothic is absolutely great at kind of bringing to the fore this sense of unease through that missing jigsaw puzzle piece that we just don't understand something and we can't put our finger on it and the gothic is fine with that it's like well this is life and it's not trying to put all the pieces together and to make everything add up and I just I love that about the Gothic and in many ways food is a reflection of this. There are some things that are just not, we're just not able to digest and that's the way it is. But it's not all about um, 
bad omens. Uh, one thing that I really liked was what you'd picked out of the story of Frankenstein, which is really one where I scratched my head when I saw you'd included it, because it's one of my favourite novels of all time. And I've read it more than once. And even then I had to scratch my head about, what's the food in that? Um, but the example that you used, and it's such an integral scene as well. I don't know why I didn't notice it. Perhaps because it was so almost normal, very abnormal from the, from the creature's point of view, but normal from the reader's point of view. And that's when he stumbles across the, the family, isn't it? Where after he kind of escapes. Can you just tell us a little bit about the setup yeah. of that scene? Yeah, I can understand why it's not like the first thing that one would think about also, because when we eat, we want to feel joy. We want to feel happiness and satisfaction. We don't want to think of it as something unpleasant or associated to all these boundaries and moral conundrums. It's, it's quite difficult to view food in that way. So I totally get that when you're reading a book, it's not the first thing that you think about. But yes, it is quite central. And this was a time when Mary Shelley was writing where the modalities of food production were changing as well. So the Industrial Revolution had begun transforming the economy and that previously was based on agriculture. So it was a really important time in that sense. And scholarship in general hasn't really focused a lot on Frankenstein's vegetarianism. But yeah, Franken Frankenstein's creatures, vegetarianism. He, he does it like on principle trying to cut himself in some ways off or distinguish himself from other people, saying that he is not worthy to be included in the sphere of the human world, um, obviously feeling that sense of rejection. And so the only thing that he will eat are berries and acorns. And so that's where that distinction is made between meat eaters that are worthy of being you know, real people and then the monsters who would just eat anything really. And that's that shift to vegetarianism is some kind of stands for some sort of original benevolence as if, you know, this monster, this creature has no, why should, why should he feel guilty? He hasn't done anything wrong. And so that association to non-meat is what helps and helps us view us as what view the monster in this sense as well as a, as a good, good monster. And that has its own moral co codes that are different from, uh, human one. Yes, I think one of the things that people don't realise if they haven't read the book is uh, just how intelligent and articulate the, the wretch is. I think he's never called a monster at any point in the in the book. We're just meant to feel sorry for him, I, I guess. And for me, what I would imagine when, when somebody said, oh, they were going to eat berries and not eat meat, I would imagine maybe some of the readership, or maybe not the readership, some of the people at the time might have thought, yeah, too right, he's got to eat berries because it's not part of the mm -hmm. human race. But that's really not how it comes across. It makes him more endearing and more sensitive and you just care much more about him and you think of it as a noble thing to do, or I do anyway. Yes, definitely. It wants to mark some sort of separation from the person that's created him and just say, look, you know, I'm placing an emphasis on the fact that I'm not part of your moral code and your moral code is that you eat meat and, you know, and you're a real human. And I'm different and I accept that. And so he's he's just kind of it wants it wants us to view him more sympathetically as well. And I think it it does achieve that. What is interesting about all this is that so the part where he is asking for a companion and says that the companion will be the same nature as myself and will be content with the same fare. So there we see again, though he's separating himself from that moral code, in a way there is an association with that sense of masculinity that thinks that a companion will just do what they say. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if 
Frankenstein were to create a companion for this this creature, well, she might want to have a say in whether she eats berries or not. She might want to have a say in whether she stays or goes or goes into exile with him, mm-hmm. or she might have a, want to have a say into whether she meets the creator or not. But again, he the creature is englobing, and, and that in a way is representative of what that society was at the time and how they thought. And Mary Shelley wanted to show us this. And again, she does it through food. So I think that's really um, exceptional and it hasn't really been focused on. No one's focused on this yet, but I think, yeah, it's really important. It's an important part of the book. She was making a statement with that saying, you know, actually, yes, he's trying to make a difference and be different from other human beings, but here is proof that really he is part of this culture. I just want to talk briefly about the scene uh, when he eats some food with the blind man in the little cottage in the woods. Because I think that's where the penny really dropped when I was talking to you before. I was like, oh, of course. Because it's a the only point in the story where he's accepted and the food shows, proves that he's being accepted because he's offered it and they share and they talk. And it's really a sweet scene. And of course, the only reason that this is happening one assumes is because the other person can't see who he really is and so that's interesting as well you know and I I just think the humanity there is a lot of reflection on like what is human you know what is what is it to be human this idea of this creature that is monstrous but what is this monstrous being trying to show us and actually the word monster in Latin means to show um, what is showing us perhaps that he's not a born killer and that his murders as well that he commits are um, a consequence of a lack of nurture because as you mentioned this man is uh, giving him food and he's kind because he can't see him so when there is a moment you know where we see a different side to this creature and that's because other people are behaving differently with him so yes that's a very important moment in the book I think and Folks, if you've never read Frankenstein, by the way, go and, go and buy a second-hand copy. <laughs> it's one of the best things you'll ever read. Uh, we should maybe talk, actually, about the, the structure of the book because you're really focusing on the stories and each each chapter is a different story, isn't it? So you can really go in, in depth and, and look at these things. What other things have you got in there apart from Frankenstein and Dracula? We thought about the number of chapters and we thought 13 was a suitably spooky number so there'll be 13 and each um, chapter will have a look at a different gothic novel and obviously what meals there are in some novels there are meals for example as we said like in in Dracula there's a paprika handle in other in others there's just kind of a a hint at something or there might be you know an ingredient definitely food items or not so much detail but we will make sure that we have five recipes inspired by each of the of the novels and that will be our our chapter okay um, along with an essay at the, at the beginning just explaining what the food symbolism is and how food functions in each of these novels and we'll be looking at Dracula Frankenstein Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier The Bloody Chamber by Angela Carter uh, beloved by um, Toni Morrison um, so you know there are lots of food scenes and food moments in each of these novels that really work towards heightening some already disturbing scenes so yeah we want to just highlight the fact that food brings out these areas of darkness and what appear to be normal in everyday life actually isn't so normal and so this is valid also for us in everyday 
um, experiences that we have with the culinary. There is, the food can definitely be a site of oppression and a site of negativity, but that's what we're going to do. Each chapter will be as we say, illustrated by by Lee beautifully. He's already done some illustrations and you can see them actually all on the Unbound website. Mm, so, Well, tell us a little bit about Unbound because uh, the book is not yet published, but uh, we can go online and, and purchase a copy on yes. Unbound. So can you tell people how that works? I didn't really have much of an idea about what crowdfunding was before this experience. When we started out, we sent a few sample chapters to publishers and I sent a few to some agents as well. And the response was overall negative. Some were quite enthusiastic and said, what a great idea, but too niche. What a great idea, but if it doesn't exist already, then there's a reason for that. <laughs> and um, which I thought, yes, that is like, that's logical. It makes sense. You know, this is the first Gothic cookbook ever to exist. There is no other. Um, so perhaps there was never a need for one before. <laughs> Why would there be now? When we sent everything to Unbound, like the response was so fast. And the next day they loved the idea. And it's just, they love new ideas and things that are niche. So that's what they're all about. So um, we're very grateful to them. And the way that they operate is slightly different. So I think there was always an issue with traditional publishers when it came to, you know, the modality of how things are done and, you know, traditional publishing, there's this, the advance and royalties model that makes it really hard for debut writers to break into the system and really hard for established writers to also break out of their niche. So if we think one in five books never earn back their advance. And so at some point, a group of people wanted, well, precisely three in 2011 decided that they should change this and they've, they have changed that landscape forever because now it just makes it a fairer environment for all I think because profits from sale and distribution are split 50-50 with Unbound for instance. It's different and it's good and it's given us the opportunity to hopefully publish something because we're at 70% funding for now so I can't speak too soon but hopefully That's excellent. yeah we will be able to get this book out into the world sometime next year. And not a new thing of course I've been reading a lot about Hannah Glass and Elizabeth Raffold two of our best cookery book writers we've ever had, both from the 18th century. And they got their book published through exactly the same method, a subscription service. They had to do it off their own back. There wasn't an unbound to do it for them. But it was, no. it was absolutely typical for somebody who was uh, writing their first their first book. We are following in the footsteps of really great, great writers. And actually, Neil, I have to say, I think I have quite a lot in common with Hannah Glass because she was raised in London, an illegitimate daughter, and her life was plagued by financial worries. So there we go. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because I think I've got a lot of uh, parallels with Elizabeth Raffles. <laughs> Born in Yorkshire, oh. but moved to Manchester. There we are. For starters. Where we don't, um, <laughs> where we're not similar is that she was, she was an overachiever. I don't, yeah. I certainly don't get to those dizzy heights. I wish. Um, I think... She, yes, her book was published. Her book was The Experienced English Housekeeper. Mm. She was writing about her own experience as a housekeeper. And a lot of these books, similarly to Hannah Glass as well, they were directed at servants, you know, this is what you must do to keep the household running. 
yeah, she asked her neighbors and friends, didn't she? She had over 800 friends and subscribers. And she said, raising me so large a subscription, which for excels by expectation, far excels my expectation. So she was, yeah, self-published and she managed to do that. I think she was, she was printing her pages at a neighbor's house, a neighborhood kind of helped. helped yeah, Joseph Harrop lived down the road and he produced a local newspaper. Well, we thought we would have a little talk about one particular novel, and that's Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte, something that I was not familiar with particularly. And I must admit, thought of it as more of a Pride and Prejudice style story. All my preconceptions were completely wrong. And it's a great book and very different in, it's not, it's not as, it's not as, um, textbook gothic, I suppose, as you would say something like a monster story is or a vampire story is, where it's very much writ large. The story of Jane Eyre is much more subtle and unnerving. I think you're right about the fact that when we kind of think about Jane Eyre, we don't immediately think, oh, gothic. But all the elements are there, you know, the woman in the attic, the large houses, the oppression, the, the punishments, the idea of, of Jane as a victim and you know, a protagonist of her own story, living on the margins in some ways of society because she's orphaned. So all the elements are there. And yet I think it's the fact that we, it's often viewed as a romance. Mm. And so that throws us a little bit. But that's a messed up romance. I mean, that, we'll get onto that. <laughs> it's a very gothic romance <laughs> in that sense. <laughs> yeah, so we start off with, there are kind of different places where Jane is positioned at different parts, different parts of the book that can help us. And food plays quite a large part. For someone who hates eating as much as Jane Eyre does, mm. there is a lot of food and she's constantly actually thinking about food. And I think a lot of Jane's vulnerability and the fact that she's emotionally confined is reflected through food. So again, this is a time that we'll, it was written in 1847. This is um, you know, quite an, an interesting time in terms of things changing for women. And we have this issue of women's limited exposure to the law, which meant that women didn't really know the full consequences of marriage. And even after all those terrible years that she spends at school receiving an education, you know, she comes out, but she still doesn't know much about what's going on when it comes to the law, when it comes to herself, you know, as what would it entail of being a married woman? And we'll see, we'll see perhaps later on how that pans out. But she start, we start off at Gateshead and that's where Mr. Mr. the late Mr. Reed's wish was for his wife to care for, for Jane. And so Jane kind of lives in this house, a victim of the abuse of nearly the whole household, really. And in a way, I think the house is a little bit haunted by Mr. Reed's authority because Mrs. Reed really dislikes Jane and she would just like to get rid of her, but she kind of can't. She feels trapped in that sense. So she excludes her, though, though from those rooms where we have union and food. And so Jane is kind of very often sent to different rooms, banned from the breakfast and dining rooms. So these food spaces are off limits for her. Uh, and in, in a way, Mrs. Reed is excluding her from society in that sense as well. So that's where she learns her food boundaries. And I think that's where she starts off not having a good relationship with food at all. Mm-hmm. And she'd even um, make it, well, worse for herself, as it were, as somebody might put it, where when she is offered food, she refuses it. Because I guess it's I guess it's an opportunity to get a bit of control back, even though it is detrimental to yes. her. 
but sometimes having control in your life is more important than a meal. Yes. And I have to say, Neil, like I've read Jane there so many times, mm. but only when I had food in mind, did I actually notice all these subtleties? Because they're little things that you kind of absorb, but you don't really give that much weight to. But then I really started noticing, as you say, that's her way of exerting control because it's the only thing that she has control over. So she says, you know, she doesn't eat the tart that Bessie gives her. And I'm thinking, why? <laughs> why wouldn't you? You just said you were hungry. Uh, but as you say, that is very much, um, and food is all about control. So, mm, And it's, of course, those issues are kind of thought of as a, as a modern thing, a 20th yeah. and 21st century thing of people controlling their lives without eating, you know, yes. uh, and it's linked very much to mental health. Yeah, and people kind of think, oh, this is a kind of, it's modern life. I suppose modern life starts around Mm-hmm. The times this book's set in, maybe it's not that much of a surprise, but it's, it's it's written with such empathy for the character by by Charlotte Bronte that it feels very modern in how it's narrated and explained yeah. and how her thoughts come across. I thought it was very modern. In fact, if you weren't told it was written by a Bronte sister, you'd think it was a historical novel written now. Yeah, I think. Yeah, because she really gets the psychological side. Uh, oh, it seems anyway, just right, right on the button. Absolutely. And it's, you know, I think in Britain, women are always associated to the domestic sphere, which means kitchen, which means food. So that would definitely make sense. Yes. And it seems like such a modern concept. But yeah, you're right. This is kind of the beginning of the modern era in that sense. Punchy moves to Lowood and Lowood is just as ghastly as Kate said, really. But she also finds some nice people there like Miss Temple. And Miss Temple is one of the teachers, and she becomes a role model in many ways. However, she does enforce this 19th century ideal of, of a woman. So she tells Jane that she needs to act as a good girl, to be submissive, and to suffer in silence. And so this is also playing in, in when it comes to food, the idea of what she's allowed to do and what she isn't allowed to do. So Miss Temple is quite high up in the school. However, there is an episode where the porridge is burnt so all the girls have nothing to eat and Miss Temple decides to give them bread and cheese and she is berated by Mr Brocklehurst. So if you absorb that and see what that means, it's a, it's a, it's a humiliation, really. And that's when we have that lovely food scene where she brings them into her room and she she brings Helen and Jane and says, I, I want to offer you something. And she's regaining a little bit of her power because she was publicly humiliated yeah. and then... She has her own space where she has her own cake and her tea, which she can offer to people if she wants. And she chooses to do that with Jane. But again, Jane doesn't see this as something necessarily positive. She sees it as, well, she's kind of doing it in secret. So she doesn't have that much power, really. She's kind of hiding, isn't she? It's like a secret food scene, a quiet rebellion. So I don't think that Jane has much respect for her in that sense which is a new food, I may be wrong, this is just a new, a new way of, see, of reading it uh, food-wise. Jane ends up becoming a teacher there herself. She so does, I guess it turns yeah. around for her, eventually if you can call it turning around. She fits in more, I suppose, that's what I mean. Yeah. Whether that's good or bad or what, I guess that's up to you. <laughs> then, she, she, yeah, she leaves and becomes a governess at a house that's relatively near the school because she travels back and forth between her new home and the school. So, so far in the story, it's, it's pretty cruel, but now it gets bizarre. It does. 
ridiculous. It gets really bizarre. And this is where I think it gets really unsettling. It does. And um, I love that people often talk about this very romantic scene when they first meet and Mr. Rochester's on his horse and she's walking That's along right. the lane and the horse is unsettled. And then, and she calls, he calls her an imp and a witch and all sorts mm. of names. And I think, hmm, is this meant to be romantic? It's really unsettling. And you're not sure whether... It's like, is he, is he doing this tongue-in-cheek? Is, is he being funny? You know, because you could read it that way. But it gets it just gets more uh, aggressive, the way he talks to her, I would say. And I think this ties into an idea of masculinity of the time as well, what a real man was meant to be like and to address people. And let's remember, Jane at this point isn't at his level. She is a servant. She's a governess. And so she really is employed by him. So I think we have that sense of, how do I display my authority? However, Jane has really been like downtrodden up until now. She's been abused and she's been, she's not used to having a good life. I don't think she she understands what is what is fully happening. And I think that becomes clear from the dialogue. Uh, and it's great how Bronte does it. And she there's a scene where um, she actually says that she doesn't want to leave Mr. Rochester because she hasn't been petrified and she hasn't been trampled on. And I feel like the very fact that you're mentioning these words, actually, it might mean the opposite. But um, she's very vulnerable, and we see that vulnerability and how when he then approaches her from a romantic perspective, she's unable to switch because she's just always used to being the servant and being inferior. Even when she was at Gateshead, she was the cousin of John Reed. She was the niece of Mrs. Reed, but still she was treated like an inferior person. So she's just been used to that. And we see that obviously through food as well, very much so because there are dinners, there are parties. She's not invited. She's upstairs as a servant with the child and with the other servants. And at one point they even forget to serve them dinner. So she has to run down and steal a bit of chicken and a tart, really. And she says, it was well I secured this forage because they were starving. So that was, you know, not great. And at this point, yeah, you start thinking, you start wondering, is Mr. Rochester all he's cracked up to be? Because he seems to be, well, I, I could never decide. Is he just trying to wind her up? Because the things that you say to her are, some, could, are really quite cruel sometimes. And yeah. And I'm not sure whether he's doing it to upset her or doing it to try and bring her out of her shell. I'm thinking, are his intentions good or are they bad? It's quite difficult to tell. It becomes more obvious as you read the book. Maybe we shouldn't say what happens towards the end. Um, but it's difficult to tell what his intentions are. Is he this guy extremely cruel or is he actually quite nice? It's one or the other. It's not, it's not in between. And it's really hard working out which, which he is. And it really puts you on edge. It put me on edge. Yeah, and I think this is the great thing about food, right? because food, both active and passive in that sense, I think is able to highlight the good and also the bad. So he is certainly offering this food to her because that's his household and that's food that's in his house. So she has access to it. She's not starving to death. But at the same time, the things that you can do with that food, whether you withhold it, whether you ask her to fill up your cup, like she is a servant, whether, you know, how you deal with food is very obvious here that we, Bronte wants us to feel that there's something that we can't quite trust about this man, that there's something, there's something deceitful. And this is created by this feeling that we have around food. And at some point Adele, his guard also says that she has a feeling that he 
will allow Jane to starve to death after they're married. Why would she, why would Bronte write this? We, we, she wants to give this feeling of like, yes, there are moments of tenderness, but also there are moments of violence. There are things we just don't know, but then that we do find out and we won't spoil what those things are, but they make a very big difference in their relationship, needless to say. Well, actually, let's talk a little bit about the, um, the recipes. Yes. I think um, we've chosen to focus on the seed cake. The seed cakes are a great starting point in the sense that it's, you know, really kind of goes back way, way in time when it comes to traditional cake. It has caraway seeds. It's simple. So, you know, it was just a symbol of what Jane Eyre was as well, as well in many ways. So a treat, but not too in, overindulgent. So. I'm a big fan of seed cakes, but they're much maligned by people thinking that they're boring dry that's because they've never had a nice one exactly and I think at the time they were probably the seeds did make it more exciting now we have so much other stuff that we don't see we don't view seeds as being particularly flavorful but before they they were so so important and I think caraway seeds have been used for a long time in British cooking yeah it's one of the few that you can grow in Europe isn't it so it was cheaper than the other ones and caraway seeds traditionally the biscuits were marked they were prepared to mark the end of the sowing of the spring wheat so they have a symbolism as well they were included in most cookery books and we mentioned Hannah Glass before and of course she has a recipe for it she does she has a few recipes in there doesn't she well the nun's cake as well she calls it and I think she has about 35 eggs in it obviously that's not we won't use 35 eggs obviously we adapt the recipe um we also will have some orange zest of, of orange and orange flower water so all these things that kind of give it flavor but it's still a very a simple recipe. well they're very much of their time those ingredients but i think now people are getting into their kitchens a little bit more than they used to people are finding yeah. these are finding out about these traditional recipes which we've kind of forgotten what they are or if they're still produced they've been producing factories for so long they don't resemble the original food at all well it's time to wrap up i would say well well, i should say thank you very much for joining me on the podcast and spending some time to talk to me about it you know the book's going to be great i'm really excited to see it in print thank you so much and thank you for supporting us honestly um we hope that other people have if they're so inclined and like the gothic and like food and are interested by this weird combination can go and visit our page at unbound.com we're a gothic cookbook um i'll find us on twitter at a gothic cookbook or on instagram a gothic cookbook thanks again to alessandra for coming on the podcast i've put hers and her cookbook's social media handles in the show notes along with a link to the unbound website unbound.com forward slash books forward slash a gothic cookbook all those words there are separated by hyphens if you want to support the book by purchasing a copy use the code gothic pod 10 for a 10 percent discount all the information's in the show notes hey did you see me last week make that giant yorkshire christmas pie on channel 5 no of course you didn't because it was cut out wasn't it it took me about a week to make and i completely bust my balls but never mind i've written two blog posts on my neil cooks grigson website and that's all i have to show for it i wasn't completely cut out of the episode so i'll leave a link to the show if you're in the uk and you want to watch it also if you've been gifted some whiskey brandy rum or calvados this christmas i've just added a new blog post looking at the history of the hot toddy a perfect drink i find to make from booze you don't like i hate whiskey but i love a hot toddy which of course is excellent if you've got a cold or the rona or you've been out for a wintry walk 
though as I record this, at Twixtmas 2021, it's unseasonably warm for December in Britain. It's about 17 degrees today. Anyway, as I warned you last time, I'm going to take a little break of just a few weeks before I continue the rest of the season. I've got to focus on my next book, The Deadlines, at the end of January. Sorry about that, but I'm sure you understand. Life just gets in the way sometimes, doesn't it? Also, there are some Easter eggs for subscribers from today's episode. I have added our full Jane Eyre chat, which I had to edit down quite heavily for time, plus a whole section about the British and their constant anguish about losing their national cuisine. There's loads of other Easter eggs on there, of course. There's deleted scenes. There's a whole extra mini-season that I made. To keep tabs on what I'm adding, go to the Easter Eggs tab at BritishFoodHistory.com. A subscription is just £3 a month. Everything I receive will go back into making more content. Alternatively, you can treat me to a virtual coffee or a virtual pint. So go to the support the blog and podcast tab on the website. Also, don't forget to like and subscribe. And if you can, leave comments and ratings. I would be forever grateful. If you've got any questions, comments or queries about anything from this episode, or indeed any episode in the podcast so far, please contact me via email at neil at britishfoodhistory.com or go on Twitter at Neil Buttery or Instagram at Dr underscore Neil underscore Buttery. Have a good new year and I'll see you later in January. Bye bye now. <laughs>